I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program. This interview was completed in January 2020 and is being broadcast for the first time on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine on Tuesday, July 7th, 2020. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Bossenmeyer with UCI Conversations. And my guest today is Professor Olivier Civelli. You may recognize his name from the multiple UCI passenger buses that are driving around campus featuring various students and academics. Professor Civelli's moniker on the bus is the Prince of Pain Relief. Welcome, Professor Civelli. How are you today? I'm okay. Fantastic. You know, before we get into your research, can we just hear about you know, where you grew up and how you got interested in science? Well, I am born Swiss, French-speaking Swiss. Half of my blood is Italian. My father was born Italian. But I grew up in a small town in Switzerland called Fribourg. It's a town which has uh, at the border of the languages. On one side you speak German, on the other side you speak French. I was on the French-speaking side. And at early age, I became interested in trying to understand why animals behave like they are. For example, we had a garden and I tried to understand, for example, how, why, why do ants follow each other? What is it? And I realized that it must have been chemical. So it must be chemical, and I, we know now, of course, it's chemical. And I did a few of my own experiments, and uh, I became very much interested in trying to understand how chemistry could affect human behavior. And that was at the basis of, of what I wanted to do. I did my undergraduate study at the Swiss Institute of Technology in Zurich. So that was in German. I did biochemistry because at the time that was the closest to what I wanted to do, something between biology and chemistry. Then I did a PhD in Paris in France. It was still a Swiss Institute of Technology PhD, but I did all my study in Paris, and I was lucky enough to be at the beginning of the molecular biology uh, time. So I, I, was, I became very much interested in understanding genes and regulation of genes in behavior. Then I did my, my postdoctoral time in Eugene, Oregon, at the University of Oregon. Uh, there, I became interested in applying molecular biological tools to the study of neuroscience. I then took a position in, um, at the Oregon Health Science University. I was one of the founding members of the Volume Institute there, where we were studying, where we had decided that we would study molecular neurobiology. And my interest was always to try to understand the complexity of the neuronal system at the chemical level. So 
We're talking about the brain. The brain. Yeah. The brain. I mean, the brain. What? Because the brain is central to everything we do for behavior. You know, why are we doing what we are doing? I was always worried, always interested why people do what they are doing. So the brain. The brain. That what it was. But I'm speaking in the middle of the eighties. We didn't know too much, and um, I I wanted to do some discovery. So. I could figure out that in the brain, in particular, there are many molecules which are there. We don't know about them, and they are important for behavior. So I set up to do that. When I was when I took that position in Portland, I decided that I would look for new molecules which could be important in brain function. Now, how I looked at brain function, I'm not a neurobiologist per se, but how we look at brain function is essentially that in the brain you have one cell, a neuron, which makes a small molecule, and this small secretes this molecule to another cell adjacent to it, and this small molecule activates the, the, this second cell, and that is the beginning of the mechanism on which all base, all brain function is is expected to work on. Now, in that so, and you're saying like from one cell to another. Yes. One cell to another, a small molecule is made by cell A. The first cell make a small molecule. It it kind of push it out of itself, and this molecule, because the two cells are very close to each other, the this molecule will interact with a receptor which is found on the second cell, gotcha. and that tells to the second cell, do the same, go further, uh-huh. do with cell three the same mechanism. Two the, cell three will do it with cell four. So it's kind of a Sequential mechanisms which go from one cell to the other. Like a handoff. A handoff, yeah. yes. But yeah. The, the, for me, what was very interesting is that this small molecule interacts with a receptor. There is always a, a, no, a small molecule, we call it a transmitter, neurotransmitter, and it interacts with its own receptors. Now, the receptors are much bigger molecules. They are proteins, they are big, comparatively big. Mm-hmm. But the, because they are proteins, Molecular biology, the, the cloning, the molecular biology can allow to find them. So say that, that, say that so, so because those molecules are part of the proteins, that means they are made by the genome. That means there is a gene which makes those receptors. Okay. So with the tool of molecular biology that I had, I could try to find a new gene encoding receptors. And in, by the end of the 1980s, um, we had found new genes which were encoding new receptors. So we kind of opened the door for finding new systems in the brain which could be important in behavior. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. And this had not been discovered before? Uh-huh. It's... This started really in the middle of the 80s. But uh, the real, the approach, of course, other people were trying to do it, but the approach that we developed was to go at the level of the genome saying, okay, we have here, we, have the, we had at the time the sequence or the gene of one receptor. And I say, if I take this receptor, if I take the gene of this receptor, and I use it, to find related gene, not the same, but sequentially related, gene which look the same, which are not the same. 
I should be able to find new receptors, and that worked. And by doing that, we were able to find uh, the f- probably the first gene, identi- the first receptor identified through that system, which was the dopamine D2 receptor. And that opened a totally different field. Because what it is, is that you have those receptors which look the same, are part of a gene family. We call them G-protein couple receptors. They are very important. They are called GPCR, G-protein couple receptor. There is about... Can we say that one more time? Gene protein... G... G... Oh, G... G G-protein couple receptor. So, G-protein... Couple... Corpal? Couple, couple, couple. That that means... uh, Those are receptors which couple to G-protein. They couple. They, oh, they couple. 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 So G protein couple, couple receptor. Receptors. Okay, gotcha. Or GPCR. Okay. You know, people got Nobel Prize for these things. Um, so, so they're, they're and I, you know, in looking at your, you know, your amount of work, I, were you working with the people who eventually got a Nobel Prize, or, or? I was, I was. We were. I know them. We were. Um, we were, uh, they, they were not doing exactly the same as I was doing. They were focusing on one, on the first one of this GPCR. Uh, and, uh, but I know them, I used indeed their, their gene to find the other one. Was the difference between you and them is like, you were going at it one way and they were going at it another way and they just, their way just happened to advance well, further? Yeah, no, their way, is, we were doing different. Uh, I mean, uh, their way was to try to understand how this GPCR are, how, this, how, how do they look like inside the cell, how do they interact, how do they work. My way was, can I find out how many of this there is, how many of these similar receptors there is. But I was not the only one doing that. I mean, there were other, but we kind of were at the beginning of all, all that. In case you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is Professor Olivier Savelli from the Department of Pharmacology. He is a world expert on how our brains interpret pain, and we are going to learn much about that today. You may also recognize his name and face from posters on the Big Blue Anteater Express buses, with his moniker being the Prince of Pain Relief. Now back to the interview. Well, and I see on the internet that you are considered one of the twenty leaders of the of the world in terms of the knowledge for this. Is yes, it, yeah, I've been uh, interviewed at that level. Yes, but what was the yeah. most interesting is for me was that okay, so we by doing that we find out that there were those different receptors, more receptors. Now the first one we found was the dopamine D two receptor, and that is something which is very important because dopamine D2 receptor was known to be very important in schizophrenia, in brain, in, in mental disorder. When people give antipsychotic drug, you know, to people with schizophrenia, they always had to hit the dopamine D2 receptor. But because we were able to get it, to clone it, now, of course, drug discovery could happen on the dopamine D2 receptor at a different level than it was before. And when they talk about cloning, like literally you found a way to, I mean, just what cloning means, to reproduce? Yes, these, uh, what we, we get the gene, okay, we get the, 
the, the gene, the part of the gene which makes the receptor, and then with that we can we can put that gene into cells, and the cells are going to produce the receptor, and then you can use the cell to find wow. some compound which wow. will work on it. Wow. Yes. So we, you know, we find the dopamine D2 receptor, that was big news, uh, but that was not sufficient for me, because we knew there was another dopamine receptor. You know, I told you the dopamine D2, but we knew already there should be a D1. There is a D2, there should be. So we looked for the D1, and us, and also found also the dopamine D1 receptor. What, what's the difference between D? I see D2 a lot, and then you're talking about D1. What is the difference between D1 well, and D2? The, the thing is, <laughs> they are sequentially somewhat different, and they act inside in the cell when they are activated differently. See, dopamine is the neurotransmitter which is associated with, uh, which is known to be important for. Uh, for reward. Um, what I mean, it's a feel-good neurotransmitter. Uh-huh. Where the dopamine, d- dopamine is the receptor that you express in, the, in your brain wh- when, you, when you feel good. When you go, you, you've gone running. And you, it, uh, maybe <laughs> no, no. But, for example, if you take, if you take cocaine, your, uh, your uh, uh, brain is going to have more dopamine acting and therefore you feel like, wow, a rush. It's a little dangerous, of course, but uh, this is it's a, it's a recept, it's a, the neurotransmitter, the, the molecule which is at the basis of reward. It's at the basis of locomotion. It's at the basis of um, um, feelings of feeling good. Yeah. Um, so it's it's and, a very important. Recept. And it can and it can be associated just with. Thoughts, right? I mean, you're with your family, and you're warm, and and, and, you, and, you, and it, it's probably it, it, there is dopamine which can be released and uh, makes you feel good. Yeah. Okay. But so we, we knew there was a, there was a D1 receptor. But what I did, though, I said there must be more. So we looked for more. Okay, and we find that there was indeed three more. There was D2, D1, then D3, D4, and D5. Okay, and the discovery of D4 was in very particularly important because the D, so the D1 and D2 are kind of two subclass the D4 belongs to the family of the D2 okay it looks like a D2 receptor but it's not the same now the issue is that I told you that the D2 receptor is central to schizophrenia drugs which are made for schizophrenia to fight schizophrenia always work in part on D2 receptor. Not only D2, but in part D2 receptor, it was always the focus. You want to do make, I mean, you want to make a new antipsychotic drug, you will, you will work on D2 receptor. That's, that was fine, okay? But and, and, and your research is, you're looking for a, a chemical that will just be better. Go right to D2. We'll yes. go to D1, 4, we, 5, we can. just to now D2. We, we can do that now. Yeah. Now we can because we have the gene. Yeah. We can do that. Well, I mean, my, it's not my research. That's a pharmaceutical company who do that. Yeah. They wanted that. But with, with uh, the drug, the antipsychotic drug, there was always an issue. Those D2 drugs are not ideal. They are not that good. They help Someone, I mean, when they gave them to people, 
they were already found in 1950s. When they gave them to some people, uh, they were better, but they were not fine. They were still not good. There is one drug called clozapine, that, or clozaril, clozapine, oh, yeah, yeah. that drug is very important. Because that drug is the best of the antipsychotic drug. And what was that drug called again? Clozapine. Clozapine, which is different from Corridalis. Corridalis. No, it's okay, that's different. Okay, that's we'll talk different. about that later. No, no, we that, that um, so, clozapine. Clozapine. Okay, clozapine so. is the drug, the, the, the gold standard in antipsychotic research. The only problem is that clozapine has some side effects which are very bad. They destroy some of the cells in the blood, so therefore, and it's, it's so, so if you take clozapine, you have to be followed. Because if you have a tendency to, to have this disease, you risk your life. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a drug that is only given only in cases where it's bad. But the trick was that clozapine, the, known as the best for schizophrenia, theoretically, was not working on the D2 receptor. It, the amount that we give to people is, is too low to be able to work on the dopamine D2 receptor. And then we find the D4 receptor. And in the D4 receptor, clozapine works very well. So suddenly, it was like, maybe it's not the D2 receptor that we wanted to hit for schizophrenia, it's the D4. So the research became crazy. I mean, people just, I mean, pharmaceutical company just went berserk. And around, what, what year was this around? 1991. Okay. 1991, they, they decided, okay, so Merck, for example, say, okay, we, we go for it, and that's it. Okay, they, they just didn't even, they didn't even um, ask, oh, we test too much in animals like we do, you know, because testing schizophrenia in animals is quasi-impossible, but there is some assay we can do, but they say, okay, let's go for it, let's go, and which is very fast. Four years later, they had drugs which had been tested in humans on dopamine D4 receptors. They just like... Oh, they went for it. it. They went for it. And the other company did that too. Everyone went. And uh, unfortunately, they did not work as good as expected for schizophrenia. So that's a pity because if it would have been, it would have been really good for, for schizophrenic people. Uh, so, so far, we don't have D4 drugs in, in, the, in the clinic. How did, you know, when you were starting to distinguish D1, 2, D3, D4, did the technology raise to the level that you could find these new molecules? You know, how were they discovered? Okay, what we do, we take one, we take the gene of one, okay? Now, gene is DNA, so it has two strands, okay? We separate those two strands and then we take one strand and we let it bind to everything you can find in the genome. We let it bind gently, not stringly, string, stringently. We let it bind to everything we find in the genome. So if there is a gene which is a little bit the same, it can bind and we can find it. Okay? That's how we, that's how we did it mostly. So that's how we were able to find those dopamine receptors. So for me, that was nice. But at the same time, because of our approach, I had found out that, oh my God, we might have 100 receptors like that. 100 of those receptors looks a little bit the same. Not dopamine, not dopamine, but all the receptors which are the same, 100. And um, 
we maybe have, at the time, maybe we had 50 to 60 transmitters to bind them. So I realized, oh my God, we have more receptors than we have small molecules to activate them. I should look for the small molecule. So I'm going to take one of these receptors which has no known ligand, and I'm going to try to find out the molecule which works on it. That was a good idea, but it implies technology which are not cheap and very difficult. So when I propose that to the instances, to the, to the, the agency who funds us, they didn't like it. And at what point, where are you uh, wor that, uh, working at that point? I was in, in Portland, in Oregon. Okay. It was in 1991. I mean, I already in 1989, 1990, I started to understand there were more receptors and transmitters. If you're just joining us, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is pharmacologist, developmental and cellular biology professor Olivier Savelli. His specialty is how the brain works when it recognizes pain. In the interview, he now talks about a time when he left academia and went into industry on a search for orphan receptors. So I decided maybe it's time to try to do it. And what happened is that in 1991, I was contacted by, by Hoffman Laroche in Basel, told me, listen, we have seen your research. We have here a department of technology and drug discovery you could take it over and you could continue to do your research. I hesitated quite a bit uh, going to, to industry, but in view of the fact that there I knew if there was a chance to do this search for new neurotransmitter, I would be able to do it. I chose to go, also for family reasons. I chose to go um, to Basel. And there I was indeed, in addition to learn, uh, learning the pharmaceutical company, uh, I was uh, able to do that research. And in 1995, we were able to take one of these receptors which, has, which had no ligand. We call them orphan receptors because they don't have any ligand. Say that one more time. We call them orphan. orphan. Or, or orphan. Orphan. Or orphan receptor. Orphan receptor. Okay. They don't have any ligand, those orphan receptors. We took one and we find the ligand, the natural ligand of that. Okay? Indeed, we call it orphanine. Orphanine. So uh, that was also a big deal because that was opening now a new direction in neuroscience, but also in the rest of biology, where we can say we are going to find new molecules, new, new of these transmitters which are so important for brain function, but also the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. So we did that in 1995, and at that time I decided that although pharmaceutical company I was in, Hoffman Laroche was very, was very happy to see that research. I realized that if I wanted to continue that in the environment, I needed to be back in academia. Although for family reasons at that time, we decided maybe it would be better to come back to the United States. Monetarily, I mean, it's industry. Are you making more money then? Or oh, yeah. Or I mean, you... no. The, for me, the, the advantage of... I was chair of the department and I was... Vice President at Hoffman Laroche. So, to doing research, I had no limit. We, I could do what I what we wanted. Okay, we could put money. I mean, not millions, but we could put ten thousand uh, dollars easily, like as we wanted. So that's clear. My salary, of course, was also higher, mm -hmm. 
But in spite of that, I chose to come back to academia and I came to UCI. Indeed, my salary was cut by 50% to come to UCI because I came as a professor and I didn't think that I should uh, you know, try to fight for the salary I had before. Uh, so I came to UCI and uh, I've been here since. And what and year was that? 1996. Huh. 1996 I came back and I, indeed, uh, I was supported by Hoffman They gave me a big grant to, because they wanted to, go to have that, to that, that research to continue. They, had, they gave me a grant uh, which was terminated after a while, but uh, they, I, I had uh, the opportunity to build up something here. So I kept on that research, trying to find new molecules in the brain which could be of importance to behavior or human relation or whatever. And we did that. Uh, 1999, we got several new systems. 2004, we got some new systems. And pharmaceutical company, another group in academia, of course, were doing that too. It became some big, big race to try to find new, because at the moment where you have a small molecule, okay, which is natural, you have the receptor, you can immediately do a drug discovery program. Immediately, because you have the receptor, you have a small molecule, you can find chemicals which could take the place of the small natural transmitter, and you can use that as a drug, provided that you know what the system is doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, our job is to find what the system does. And of course, we found some some systems which were interesting. In 1999, we were working with a new, uh, one of these new neurotransmitters, a neuropeptide, indeed. And it was a neuropeptide which was known to have some importance in regulating food intake. And since it was in the brain, we, were, we had big hopes that, for example, that new neuropeptide would be able to regulate the palatable part of food intake which means that if you block it, people would say, hey, I don't want to eat, uh, I don't want to eat hamburger, I eat, um, I eat salad. Mm -hmm. But it didn't work exactly like that. It's never exactly like that. But we kept on working a little bit on that. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so my research has been going like that okay? for quite a while. I visited many companies, I visited many groups, and what happens is that the search for new neurotransmitters by the mid-2005, 2005, some became very difficult. We were unable to use this approach we had developed to try to find new one. And we don't know exactly why, but it became very difficult. There is a lot of receptors, those orphan receptors in the brain, which are there, or in the body, which are there, but we don't have the, what activates them. We still don't understand. So, so, th so they're orphan receptors, and uh, until you find that the they're not, the that you find a connected. Yes, you yeah, can find okay. the connected. Then you yes. you name it. Then you know. You, okay, you name okay, it. Gotcha. Okay, and they're no longer an you orphan. Can, you right. can put your name on it. Yeah. You can put whatever you want on. Gotcha. Well, we have few rules, but I mean, we you can yes, we we have them. So, are you budding against? Technological advancement, you know. I mean, because they're, they're they're not there for nothing, or or it's something different, something we have not understood so far. I mean, it's technologically yes, we we still I would still like to see some development happening, but theoretically it should work. Yeah. The question is sometimes you know maybe those those molecules those 
transmitters that we are looking for. Maybe they are not express, they are not made in the body when we look for it. You know, in general, what we do, we take mice, rat, or if necessary, pigs, brain. But maybe if they are made when the animal sleeps, they are not there the other time. Or maybe when the animal eat, or maybe, and we would have to know the biology to find the ligand. That was one of the big problems. But the fact is that we were unable, after a while, we were unable to find it. And uh, we are not the only one. The rest of the world, was, we, we face, okay, if we speak about this G-protein couple receptor, now they are the biggest gene family in the human genome. And they regulate everything. They regulate the brain, they regulate the hormones, they regulate the liver, they, they regulate a lot of stuff, okay? So out of that, we have in our genome probably about 900 G-protein couple receptors. Out of that 500, 400 something are here only for olfaction. They are the receptor also who makes you smell. They, the, you and all the animals, uh, smell because of G-protein couple receptors. So we consider those one a little bit separately. They also are many, many of those don't have ligands because we, it's very difficult to analyze what they could act on. But we have in the genome about 360 GPCR. So dopamine, serotonin, uh, hormones, uh, all those guys have their GPCR. But there is still about 80 which have no ligand and we cannot find them. So that was for me uh, an issue because uh, you know we could work on the system we had but we wanted to do something too, different. And at that time I had one colleague, one woman who came from China and she was working in China, she was working in a totally different field in China, they wanted to do traditional medicine. So what they had done is to take known traditional Chinese medicine, mostly plant, they extract everything out of those plants. And they, you know, they, they do chemistry, analytical chemistry on those extracts. So they have hundreds of, of of, of fraction containing the different part of the plant. But they didn't know what they to do. So we decided maybe we should do that and test some of these fractions on our receptors. We tried a little bit on the orphan receptor, but that did not work. But because we couldn't find too much, we decided we are going to revert to a system we know. And the system we chose was pain. It was, say it again? It was pain. It was analgesia. Pain. Pain. Yes. Okay, okay, gotcha. So, we figured out, oh, what if we were to take traditional Chinese medicine, which are known for thousands of years to be analgesic, and we look at what... And analgesic take is what, anything that takes away pain. Yeah. Okay. And we looked at what are in this plant active on a system we know, which is the opioid system. The opioid system is a morphine system. It's where morphine works on. So we are going to look and say maybe if we take a bunch of plants and we analyze everything which is inside, maybe we'll find something which works on the opioid system. And that's what we did. We took 10 plants. And out of the 10 plants, there was one which shows some activity for the opioid system. But it was weak, very weak, very, very weak. And when you say opioid system, you're talking about something inside each one of us human yes. beings. As human beings, mm. you will have a way of recognizing morphine. Morphine is not made in your body. Okay, there is some special 
peptide which replaces morphine. But when you take morphine, morphine goes in your body, and there is some receptors, there is three kinds of receptors at least, which recognize morphine, pick it up, and say, stop the pain. That's what it is. But as you know, morphine has some bad side effect, and in particular, addiction. So, but it's still the gold standard in... So a, the chemical of morph- morphine... Morphine, it comes from a plant, huh? And it creates in your body, your body manufactures this shutting down of pain. I guess, is that what you're saying? What it is, is you have the the receptor for morphine present in your spinal cord, in your brain. You take morphine, morphine goes all over your body, but when it sees the receptor for, for, for pain, morphine acts on it, and what it does, it probably inhibits that receptor and the receptor then sends signal to the brain and say no more pain kind of okay it's a little bit more complex yeah, than yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah. it's a it's kind of what it is so morphine does that for you. Huh. so we people have been using morphine for so but is morphine is is the chemical of morphine painful to your body or is it just tricking your body it's just tricking your body tricking your body because yeah. no, yeah. the, the, there's no itself is, is, is I mean, per se, it doesn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could... No. Yeah. Huh. No, and that's all the drugs. The drugs do the same. I mean, right. they, yeah. Everything is based on that, you know. Right. You, you, until you find the receptor, you don't do too much. Uh-huh. Okay? So, so we, we looked for, for this active stuff that we found. So, that was a little interesting because that was in 2014. The compound that we found was not working on the on the opioid on the new on the opioid receptor. It was not. It, it works very weakly, but it still it works on against pain. And you know there is different kind of pain. There is acute pain if I pinch you or if you. Okay, that's acute pain. There is inflammatory pain. You know the one that uh, you fight with uh, alive or with uh, you know because uh, but. Arthritis? Arthritis. Okay. And then there is chronic pain that, oh, my back hurt, and doctor, what can I do? We cannot do too much. Okay? It's, it's chronic pain is the worst one. We can handle the acute pain if it is bad with morphine. Fine. Uh, an inflammatory pain, which is not too bad, we can handle with aspirin and Aleve. But uh, the chronic pain, we don't have really good molecules for that. And this is what affects people. This is where there is also problem. And uh, so we had this compound, and when we tested it, it was working against acute pain, cro- inflammatory pain, and chronic pain in animal. In animal, we so that was quite interesting. And then we figured, well, we have to show because he, does it works like morphine? Does, does does it work like morphine or not? It does not. We find that it does not bind to the morphine morphine receptor. It works on something else. It took us a little while until we find out by ch- that indeed it works on the, the dopamine D2 receptor. We were back onto the dopamine D2 receptor, and I was there. So 25 years later, why does, <laughs> does nature do that to me? But it does work on that. It's not awfully powerful, but it works on that. Okay. If we take mice which do not have dopamine D2 receptor, this compound is not very active. What is interesting, though, is that this, when you give morphine to people, 
they, you give morphine, there is a good analgesic response, but if you keep on giving morphine, it decreases, 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 de decreases. We call that tolerance. Tolerance. Okay? We tolerate. Uh, the uh, to tolerance. Tolerance. Yes. Okay. So we have the, the tolerance, and that's a big problem in clinic, because that's why they give you morphine and more morphine and more morphine. Mm -hmm. Our compound is not as powerful as morphine, but it doesn't lose activity. It shows no tolerance. So, so we published that. Okay? That was interesting. And how was it received? Yeah, very, it was posi received. very positive? Yeah, it was received very positively. I mean, uh, to the point that it went into the news and Dr. Oz spoke about it. Uh -huh. And uh, I got phone call, email, people telling me, we want this compound. We want this compound. I have mostly people who have chronic pain. Because chronic pain, you don't treat it very well with morphine. So they say, we need something. We need, we want this compound. And I tell them, sorry, the compound is not in the clinic. You cannot give the compound. But I told them, listen, the compound comes from plant extract that you can get on the internet or you can get in a health store. Maybe try the plant extract. And a few, several people told me, this is fantastic. I was taking oxycodone, I was taking stuff. This is good, this is good, I feel much better. I can't sleep, I had the pain of, you know, pain is uh, 10 to 1. Mm -hmm. I had the pain of 5, 7. I feel good, it's fantastic, I give it to my wife. I mean, I was like, wow, that's interesting. But for me it was an anecdote. Because, you know, one person is not a proof, okay? Yeah. One, two, three persons is not a proof, okay? But then after a while I said, well, Listen, I told people to take the plant extract. I should really test if the plant extract as a whole has also an analgesic response, a, a pain response. And we tested it. And it works, it works okay. In our hand, on animals, it works as an analgesic. Chronic pain, inflammatory pain, acute pain. It's not morphine, in, especially in acute pain, but it works. So we published that too. And we knew also that this extract, mostly, in my view, uh, is working through the dopamine D2 receptor. Okay? Now, I told you at the beginning, dopamine D2 receptor is the receptor for addiction. It's the receptor which you want to activate, well, that you, you will activate if you take cocaine. It's, a it's really the receptor of reward. It's a receptor, if, if, you, if you give it, if you activate it, you could have an addictive problem. So if you block the dopamine D2 receptor, you will block addiction. So I didn't, I didn't care for a little while until I understood the opioid epidemics. We are looking for... Uh, Say that one part. I, until we I understood that we are in the middle of the opioid epidemic. Yeah, right, right. And the opioid epidemic is what? It's trying to find, to give people a compound which relieves pain, but does not give them addiction. Which my understanding from the news has been a total failure because so far it's not very good. Yeah. They are hoping, but very good. so now we are doing some research where we are there and saying, what if we tell to people to take a little bit of this traditional Chinese medicine, and maybe we can reduce the addictive property. So in those, in, at the same time, we we will fight pain and reduce the addictive property. So we are in the process of doing some experiment in animals. On that, also we have also um, we have we are also thinking about starting something in human, because this comp this extract can be bought; it exists. 
it is made. It is sometimes even very cleanly made, and uh, people could take it. Mm. And so, when I looked at the problem of opioid epidemic, is what is someone who goes to the doctor with some pain, chronic pain mostly, and the doctor said, "Take morphine. It works. Yeah, little bit. It's not good for it, but it works. Take not oh, morphine. They give them oxycodone or morphine analog." Mm. And the uh, person take it, it relieves the pain, but by taking it, it becomes addicted, addicted, mm -hmm. and then it cannot get out of it. Mm -hmm. And probably still feel, feel some pain, but cannot get out of it. So maybe I'm thinking that maybe we can do something with this, mm -hmm. with this traditional medicine. You are listening to UCI Radio, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is neuroreceptor and transmitter expert, Professor Olivier Civelli. We now briefly discuss cannabis and neuropeptides and what they do. Have you looked at cannabis at all? No, we have not looked at cannabis in that. But that would be also the same principle. I don't know. We have to be, uh, we have to look, uh, we know the, re the receptor of cannabis. Are G protein couple receptor too. So uh, there is, uh, you know, is, is whether you can fight. So I, I believe there is something to be done between cannabis and uh, opioid epidemics, maybe. But I don't know if it's doable. But I don't do cannabis research. So. Gotcha, gotcha. And you're the chair of uh, pharmacology? Not anymore. Oh. The pharmacology department has migrated from uh, the School of Medicine to the School of Pharmaceutical Science and Pharmacy. And uh, I'm not chair of the pharmaceutical science department. Gotcha. So there continues to be much work to be done, it sounds yes. like, right? Yes, <laughs> there is quite a bit of work. There is quite a bit of work to continue to find new neurotransmitters, which is really, you know, I was surprised to find myself on the bus as the prince of pain relief. Pain relief, I don't know. I'm more uh, looking for new neurotransmitters and neuropeptides and uh, no, neuroactive molecules in the brain than, than okay. pain per se. But these days, yes, we are interested in pain. Okay. And when you say neuropeptides, yes. what is that referring to? Well, so it's small. So, so in a, you have chemicals which are neurotransmitters, very small molecules in a in a in terms of biology, small because DNA is huge, proteins are big, uh, those are small, okay? Neuropeptides are, are small peptides, so they are made like protein, but they are proteins that are chewed up in small pieces, and so they become a neuropeptide. So instead of a, molecule, a protein maybe as a molecular weight of, I mean, let's say as 300 amino acids, a peptide that's maybe 5, 10, no, it's, it's, it's a, it, has made, it is made as a protein, but it's chew up to be able to come out of the cell more easily and to act on receptor. Gotcha. So you have your own lab here, is that yes. correct? Yes. So how many students are in your lab? Well, it has varied. Yeah. Presently, I have one student. I work very closely with a colleague here, and uh, we kind of share the lab space, and we kind of uh, have students together, and we have a lot of undergraduate students with. 15, 20 undergraduate students. Uh, I have one postdoctoral fellow. I have several uh, visiting professors who come. It's, it's very difficult to find funding for research like that. These days, uh, discovery research is not funded very well. It's more 
plain research, which is funded, trying to do something we know we get results. See, when we were looking for this new neurotransmitter, if we don't find anything, we have nothing. So NIH doesn't like that too much. They doesn't want to pay for that. So it's, I have difficulty to find. That's the reason my lab is quite small. Do you have a vision for the next step? What's the next frontier for you? Is it just continue onward, or is there something that is percolating for you? Um, for me, I think the future is trying to use some of these new systems that we've found and try to find how they affect human, uh, they affect behavior in animals, of mm. course, but it would be the same in, you, in humans. And I am very much interested in keeping my eyes open for uh, unexpected data. You know, why, why, why is, if you read papers, you say, oh, why is that happening? So I, I kind of don't have a direction where I say, I'm going to do this, in the next five years I will be there. No, I don't. I just go where my research goes, mm-hmm. so where my feelings go. Mm-hmm. Professor, what about in your long career? Obviously, you've had adversity. I mean, you've had challenges, right? Do you, do you remember a significant challenge that you were very confronted with in that you you know, you didn't know what you were going to do and you had to just grind your way through it? Do, mm-hmm. do you have an example of that? Oh, yes. I, I have several examples like that. But when I started this search for receptors by saying, okay, we are going to find new receptors. My colleagues and people visiting to attending, you will never know what they are doing. How can you, even if, even if you were to find some, how are you going to find what they do? And that was a big challenge. It was a very risky challenge. I mean, indeed, at that time, I was at risk of being, I, I, I didn't have a tenure position, so I was at risk of being kicked out. But I took the risk, because for me, it was exciting to say, let's try. Okay, let's took the risk. And when we were successful, of course, all those people were telling me, oh, this is not the way to do research. I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Well, they, they joined my research. Yeah. <laughs> so that was one challenge. Other challenge, of course, always the funding has always been a big issue for me because I don't, I'm not in a box. I always, five years later, I do something different. So I get, if I get money for something, you can be sure five years later I'm doing something else. So people don't like that. They like to know where where you should be. Uh, you know, ah, he, he, he is the guy who does that. Okay, so we know. Now he's doing something else. Oh my god! <laughs> um, so that is a challenge. Um, yeah, I had some challenge. How about heroes? When you were either in college or over the years, is there one or two people you're like, man, that person inspires me? Or Yes, uh, yeah, well, of course. I had, uh, I, I had some people who, uh, I wish I would have been able to do their research. Even now, there's some younger people than me who do fantastic research. But so I was at the Swiss Institute of Technology. Okay, this is kind of, the, uh, it's an institute which is very special because when you are there, you know one thing: whatever you do, you are not going to be the most the best students that they produce because they produce Albert Einstein. The same is <laughs> so when you are you have you are there you and you know there's a bunch of Nobel Prize after but I mean you are there and say okay fine we can do but we are not going to be number one. <laughs> okay. So challenge I mean not challenge but uh, my admiration exists of course for at that level. I had the I had the opportunity to meet Nobel Prize, I had the opportunity to meet 
brilliant people. So yes, I I have uh, you know, people I look for as wow. I mean, you know, you, those are people who have done something a, a major, major yeah. important. You know, yeah. Yeah. you know, outside of your science world. Mm-hmm. Do you have spare time, or does yes, 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 yes. I, I take my spare time these days, especially. I mean, it's it's quieter. I know when you reach seventy, things get a little quieter. Yes. Is, are you seventy years old? Yeah. Okay. I travel quite a bit because first because of the research, I was, you know, I was happy. They call, come, give a talk. Company, come here, come there. I mean, at the time of the dopamine system. I was in the plane uh, every week, practically, or something like that, going sometimes to Europe, and and uh, with my wife, uh, we like traveling, so we took advantage of that in the sense that if I go for for a conference, we go traveling. But also, we took our time. For example, I had a um, very long uh, interaction and still existing uh, collaboration with people in China. So for eight years. We went one month of the year. We were going to China in Dalian. It's a town, not too much known here, but still a town of something like five million people. So we were going that. That's in the northeast part of China. So from there, we will always take some trip out. For example, we went to Bhutan. We went to Myanmar. We went to Vietnam. We went to Mongolia. I went to Siberia, and I went even to North Korea because it's not too far, and I went to visit. Before, wow! At the time of King Jong Il, can you briefly tell us your impressions of North Korea? <laughs> oh yes, I guys. How long were you there? I was there for about six days. Okay, and that was in 2011, and that was like I said before, the present uh, uh, ruler, um, that is father. It's uh, a, a trip which is the most depressing part of the world I've seen. Because I knew South Korea, I've been in South Korea several times, and then you go to North Korea and you see, you, you can see a country which is made of the same people as South Korea, South Korea, and which is in dear need of help. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, it was very depressing, but also uplifting in some aspect. Because my wife and I had t- taken a uh, tour, and because of the tour, we had. Two, two guides, because there were never a woman guide and a, bo- a man guide, and, and a car, I mean a jeep, some kind of jeep. Mm-hmm. Okay, they were taking us every place we wanted. We could go mm-hmm. all we wanted, of course. You don't say, I'm going to visit this and that. No, they, they take you on tours, okay? But in spite of that, I had the, the opportunity to see, to feel what the North Koreans show you. You know, they, they know they are in a pitiful place in a pitiful situation. They know it very well. They want to they they want to see the change. But of course they have to say it according to our uh, to our uh, government. Okay? So for example they all told us, yes, we want reunification. And we already know what will be the national anthem, which is uh, it's called uh, Arirang. It's, uh, it's a song from South and North Korea. So they, they want that, they want it, but they cannot. Because it's maintained as it is maintained. And I still wonder who is behind maintaining that. I think we, uh, China, the, the, the South Korea too, uh, some aspect of it, we maintain them in that. They could change. They could change. I mean, it's um, it's very... We had, I had some moments which were very bizarre. Um, mm. For example, you know what is a DMZ? Yeah. So, 
the DMZ. The de- demilitarized zone uh, between North and military. South China. So I'd seen it from North Korea, South Korean side, and then we can see it from North Korean side. But from North Korean side, you can you can go in this build this blue building. You know, Trump was close to it. Mm. This blue building where they signed the armistice, and there we were with some. There were the only also tourists were Chinese tourists uh, because Chinese Chinese can uh, can visit North Korea, and there was uh, some kind of a colonel or some who was speaking in Korean, and of course lambasting. Um, uh, South Korean and America, but uh, bad, uh, bad it was, uh, how uh, terrible are things like that. And I couldn't understand, but my guide was translating me. But looking at how he spoke, I understood. Bad guys, bad guys. So, and then I was sitting, sitting next to the door at the exit, and this colonel came out because the Chinese stay in to take pictures. He came out. He looked at me and said, "But we love American." <laughs> He said, we love the American people, in perfect English. I think he was telling me, in, in no term, all what I said, which I could understand, but uh, I could figure out, has no meaning. In what we want is, we want. My guy, too, once, once we are sitting outside, nobody could hear. He told me, if, if they open the border three hours later and in Seoul, South Korea, then they know they know too well, and we may we keep them like that. It's it's um yeah. it's not it's not right. No, and uh, that's uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's it's something to go to visit if you. you know, I saw in my youth. I saw Bulgaria when it was part of the Soviet Empire. So, but it was not as depressing as North Korea. Thank you for that story, Professor. On a on a brighter side, since you've traveled a lot, do you have a favorite place in the world? Well, it depends for what. I mean, I've seen beautiful. I mean, we saw places like Bhutan is beautiful in the mountain of uh, Himalaya. Uh, but maybe if for me, if I had a place to go to tr- to just visit and say, I would still be Italy because Italy has it all. They have the weather, they have the food, they have the sea, they have they have the wine, things like I care most. You know, I this day I care a lot about what I'm eating and. It's a really great place. I love Japan. I love Japan. Fantastic performance. Japanese food maybe is the best food in the world. But um, yeah, I love Japan, but it's different than Italy and much more serious. Um, no, it's, no, it's a beautiful place like that. Well, Professor, we've come to the end of our time. Yeah. Thank you very much for these insights into your incredible research. Keep up the great work. It's it's important. Yeah, hope we can do something. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you again to developmental and cellular biology professor Olivier Savelli for his insights into human biological and chemical brain reactions. Before this interview, I had never heard of the fascinating world of neuroreceptors and transmitters. Wow! Where will science go tomorrow? Thank you for your work, Professor Savelli. As we come to a close, thank you too to blues piano artist Fred Kaplan for supplying all the show theme music for this show from his wonderful CD, Signifying. And now, coming up next at 5 p.m., is Ash Kumra on Entrepreneur Nation, talking about success in business and what it takes. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of UCI with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer. Honored and privileged to be sharing the microphone with these amazingly talented group of people. 
You've been listening to it here at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And on a personal note, I am very sorry to see that wearing a face mask has become such a political issue. The science is there. We have heard it over and over. Wear a mask when you cannot socially distance. Together we stand, divided we fall. God bless America. Be safe. Have a great evening. So long, everybody.